You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Well, good morning again. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Hey, let's do something together. Uh, Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to say, he is risen. And then you're going to say, in response, you're going to say, he's risen indeed. You got it? All right, let's go. He is risen. Let's do it again. He's risen. He risen Amen. Hey, he is risen indeed. In our time together this morning, we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, and we're going to be talking about what it means for us today. So the title of today's message is, Why You Need a Resurrection. It's why you need a resurrection. Let me ask you a question. What would you say are the two most important words in the English language. Or let me put it another way. What would you say are the two most beautiful words in the English language? Well, there have been a lot of people who've speculated about this or wrote on it. For example, in Harvard Business Review, they had an article which was that by this exact title, they said, you know, what are the two most important words in the world? And according to Harvard Business Review, the two most important words in the world are recognition and praise, recognition and praise. And they said that more than anything else that people want in life, more than money, more than fun and recreation, these are the two things that people want more than anything. They want recognition when they do something well and they want praise. Now, I, I kind of agree with that. I think that those are two really important things and we shouldn't neglect them. But I don't know about you, but when I hear those words, they don't give me goosebumps, right? They don't make my heart leap within me. They don't put a knot in my throat. They don't uh, make me get choked up. Other suggestions have been put forward. Uh, For example, a sales and marketing firm that I found online, they say that the two most important words in the English language, at least when it comes to sales and marketing, are you and why. You and why. And I guess that's probably important if you're talking about sales and marketing. Uh, One lady I talked to recently, she said that the two most beautiful words that she's ever heard are whenever her husband tells her, you're right. So I guess she really likes that, right? Uh, Other people have put forth other suggestions. They've said things like, uh, the two most important and beautiful words in the English language are the words, thank you. Or others have said, I'm sorry. Or others have suggested, love you, which... That last one kind of cheating, that's not even like proper English. And the other one was kind of a, you know, is a contraction. That's actually three words. So I don't think those count. But they're all important things, aren't they? Uh, They're all beautiful words. But the Bible actually shows us two words which together are even more beautiful, are even more important. Because these two words, when you put them together, they are able to change your life. They're able to change your life. They're able to turn bad news into good news. These two words, they can be injected into any situation, any out, any situation that you're facing in your life, and they will alter the outcome. And those two words are the words, but God, but God. Those two words together, perhaps, are the most hopeful words in the English language. And they point us to a great truth, and that great truth is this, that God is active in our lives, he's active in the world, and he intervenes in our lives, and he intervenes in the world. Did you know that that phrase, but God, it's found in the Bible 45 times, 45 times throughout the Bible. And every time it appears, there's a radical change As for what was before and then what comes after is radically changed from what happened before. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher, he said this. He said, these two words in and of themselves contain the whole of the gospel of Christ, but God. 
Why? Here's why. Because no matter uh, what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter what you're facing in your life, even today, you can have a but God moment, right? That radically changes your story. It sets your life on a whole new trajectory, gives you a whole new direction. It changes your story completely. And what we celebrate on Easter Sunday is really the ultimate but God moment. It took place 2,000 years ago, and here's how the Bible describes it in the text that we're gonna be looking at today. In Acts chapter 13, uh, it describes it this way. It says, when they had carried out all that was written of him, that's Jesus, they took him down from the tree, they laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. Jesus was dead, but God raised him from the dead. God intervened and he changed that story. And for the rest of our time together, uh, I'd like to talk to you about two things. Two things that we're gonna talk about for the rest of our time. Number one, why Jesus' resurrection matters. And number two, why you need a resurrection. See, the message of Easter isn't only that Jesus rose from the dead, it's that because he rose from the dead, you too can experience resurrection. You can be raised from the dead as well. And I wanna talk to you about why that is so important and why we need it. Why Jesus' resurrection matters. We're gonna look at Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, we see the first recorded sermon of Paul the Apostle. The first recorded sermon uh, from Paul the Apostle. Earlier in his life, Paul had been a hater of Christians. In fact, he had even led campaigns to have Christians arrested. He was self-righteous. He didn't believe in Jesus, but God, but God intervened in his life and changed his story, changed his heart, changed his mind. And Paul's life was radically changed uh, and transformed. He went from being a hater of Christians to being one of the very first Christian missionaries who went out into the world. And, and this sermon that we have here in Acts 13, this is a message that Paul preached on one of his missionary journeys when he went to what is now modern day Turkey. And he went there to talk to the people about Jesus, to talk about what made Jesus so special and what made him different and why they should put their faith in him. And what I wanna show you through this message is that in this message that Paul gave, he shows us three reasons why Jesus' resurrection matters. So he's gonna show us three reasons why Jesus' resurrection matters. He tells us, starting in verse 26, he says, here is the good news, the gospel of our salvation. And then he goes on to say this. Here's why Jesus' resurrection matters. Number one, it matters because it was prophesied. It matters because it was prophesied. Let's read from verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. You see, there were hundreds of prophecies going back hundreds, even thousands of years before Jesus was born. And all the prophecies said this, that one day God was going to send a savior. He was gonna send a savior who would come and would fix everything that's wrong with this world. You know that, don't you? You know that there are things that are wrong with this world. You know it, you feel it, you see it, you observe it. How could you not? See, we all look around this world and we see suffering, we see violence, we see broken families, we see hurting people. And there's this thing inside of us that when we see those things, we intuitively say, that's not right. That may be how it is, but it's not the way it should be. 
It's not the way it's supposed to be. And yet that's the way things have been for as long as we have history, right? So why would we think that there's something wrong with that? Why wouldn't we think that that's normal and natural? And yet we don't. Let me ask you, why do you feel that way? When you look at the bad things in the world, why do you intuitively, innately say, it's not right? It shouldn't be that way. Well, the Bible tells us why we feel that way. The Bible says this, that the reason you feel that way is because God didn't create this world to be a place of hatred and sin and darkness and death. He created the world to be a place of light and life and goodness and joy. And there's something ancestral, even ancient within our psyche that intuitively knows that. And when we look around the world and we see brokenness, we instinctively say, That's not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not the way it ought to be. And so the question is, if that's not, if this world isn't, is broken and there's problems and it's not the way it's meant to be, well, how did we get to be where we're at now? Well, it happened simply as a result of our rebellion against God. See, through our rebellion, a foreign element was introduced into God's good creation. That element was sin, and it brought with it a curse, a curse of corruption and even death. Think about it. Out of all creation, we're the only ones who don't obey God. Do you ever think about that? The trees, they do exactly what God made them to do. The wind and the waves, they obey him. And yet here we are, and we're the only ones in all of creation who look at God and say, no, we won't do what you're telling us to do. And as a result of our rebellion and our sin, the result is cracks in the fabric of God's good creation, corruption, and ultimately death. See, we're broken people. It's not just that we live in a broken world. Guys, it's even worse than that. We ourselves are broken. We're broken and dying people living in a broken world. But God, see, there's the good news, right? Those are those two most beautiful, most hopeful words in the world. But God, the Bible says, but God, even though we messed things up, even though we created this problem, God promised that he wouldn't leave it this way. He's not gonna abandon us to this. No, he promised that he would come to us and he would do something about it and he would make things right. See, the way that he promised to do it was that he promised to send a person. He promised to send a savior, And over the course of many years, centuries, even millennia, God revealed more and more about who this person would be, who this savior would be, who would one day come and who would make right what's wrong in the world. And it amounted over time to hundreds of prophecies given over hundreds, even some cases, thousands of years before Jesus was ever born that talked about who this savior would be, where he would be born, what he would do during his life, how the people would recognize him when he came, and even how he would die. But it even went one step beyond that. And it said, not only is he gonna die, but he's gonna be raised again and he will live and reign forever. And so when Jesus came, there were all these prophecies, all these hints, here's how you're gonna recognize him. And many people did, but yet there were some who didn't. And in the greatest irony, some of those people who didn't recognize him, they themselves fulfilled the prophecies about Jesus by putting him to death. One of the prophecies said this, said this in Isaiah chapter Uh, 53, verse six, it said this, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. So what this is saying is that the way the Savior would save us would be by dying for us, that he would give his life in place of ours, taking all the punishment that my sins and your sins deserved and taking our curse upon himself so that we might receive blessings, so that we might be set free. Paul goes on in verse 28 on the same thread of talking about how the the death and resurrection of Jesus were prophesied. He says this in verse 28. And though they found him not guilty, they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Let me ask you this. Why does this matter for us? Why does it matter that this was prophesied beforehand? Here's why. Because these prophecies about Jesus' life and death and resurrection, they are the proof that Jesus really is who we as Christians claim him to be. See, because there are a lot of people in the world, right, who look at Jesus and they say, hey, look, I'm sure he was a good person. He must have been a good teacher. He obviously had a big following, but I don't know if I buy the stuff about him being like the savior of the world. That just seems a bit grandiose, right? Here's the thing. Again, we have these hundreds of prophecies made hundreds, sometimes in some case thousands of years before Jesus was born and Jesus fulfilled them. And these fulfilled prophecies are the proof that Jesus wasn't just another good person like so many other good people who have lived and died, but that he was indeed the promised savior who came sent by God to redeem the world. Uh, again, another one of the big questions or things that people you know, bring up about Christianity, they'll say, hey, look, if there are all these religions in the world and they all claim to be telling the truth, right? They all claim that they're the right one. Well, then how can I be sure that Christianity is telling the truth, that Christianity is the right one and not some other religion. Well, check this out. Did you know that people actually asked Jesus that same question? They asked him, Jesus, how can we know that the things you're saying are actually true? Because these are some pretty big things you're saying. Like, how can we know that these are true? Can you give us some sort of proof or some kind of sign that would tell us that what you're saying is actually true? And Jesus said this. He said, in, uh, it's found in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus said this. I'll give you one sign. So pay attention, he said. I'll give you one sign, and here's what it is. I'll give you the sign of the prophet Jonah. You guys remember Jonah, right? Guy, he throws himself off a boat to kill himself. He gets swallowed by a great fish. He gets barfed up the next day, or three days later on the, on the coast, right? And then he walks into town smelling like fish guts and then preaches the message. But here's the deal with Jonah. Jesus said this, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is saying, you want proof, I'll give you proof. This will be your sign, this will be your proof, so pay attention, keep your eyes open. You're gonna notice this. If I die and then three days later I rise from the grave, that'll be the proof to you that what I said was true and I am who I claim to be, the savior of the world sent by God to bring redemption. See, here's what that means. It means that as Christians, all of our faith hinges on a historical event. It hinges on a historical event, which either happened or it didn't. It doesn't hinge on some hypothetical idea or some philosophy. It hinges on a historical event that either happened or it didn't. It's that simple. That event is the resurrection. If you want to disprove Christianity and shut it down completely, all you have to do is disprove the resurrection. 
And guess what, guys? People have tried to do that for the last 2,000 years. Tried. The, the Romans tried to do it. The, the Jewish religious leaders have tried to do it. People throughout history have tried to do it. And no one has succeeded. Now, maybe you say, well, I mean, let's just say, what if Jesus' disciples just took his body right? And then they hid it somewhere and then they made up this story and they just lied about it. And they said, yeah, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, just like all the prophecies said, and you guys should all worship him and probably give us your money, right? Some people say that that's probably what happened. Well, that brings us to the second thing that Paul tells us about the resurrection. And that's this, the resurrection matters because it was witnessed. Here's what he says in verse 31. For many days, he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. This is after his resurrection. He appeared to them and he says, these people are now witnesses to the people. Okay, one of the greatest evidences that Jesus actually rose from the dead and it wasn't a lie or a hoax or anything like that. One of the greatest proofs is the effect that it had on those who claimed that they saw him after he rose from the dead. See, when Jesus was arrested, do you remember what his disciples did? They ran away, they fled. In fact, it tells us they, they were afraid that they were going to be arrested and killed next, just like they had done to Jesus. So they went and they locked themselves in a house behind closed doors. And it says that they were scared and they were hiding and they were afraid for their lives. But then, like a couple months go by, and something incredible happens. There's this incredible change that takes place in them. Those same people who had been scared and afraid and hiding, they suddenly became, become very bold, like almost like recklessly bold. They come out of their hiding places and they just go right out in public and they say, hey, we are Jesus's disciples. And they start proclaiming publicly, Jesus rose from the dead and we saw it with our own eyes. And you know what happened to him as a result? Did they get rich and famous? No, they got arrested, persecuted, beaten, tortured, and eventually all of them got killed except for one, and that wasn't for lack of trying, right? And yet none of that stopped them. They become reckless. And it wasn't just the 11 disciples. It tells us, Paul tells us in another place, he says, there were many people who saw him over the course of about seven weeks. Jesus appeared to a whole bunch of people. At one time, he appeared to a crowd of over 500 people who all saw him at the same time. And again, let me remind you, what did these people get in return for their claim that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead? Did they get rich? Did they get famous? Did they get popular? Did they get book deals, invited on talk shows? Not at all, right? What did they get? They got arrested and tortured and killed. And not just them, but even their children, their family members. Now, let me ask you this. Who would do something like that? Like, who would make up a story that causes them and their family members to get arrested, beaten, tortured, killed? Right, like um, who in their right mind would do that? Now maybe you say, well, I'm sure there's some kind of crazy person out there who would do something like that. Yeah, but this many, thousands of them, would thousands of people do that and yet refuse to recant because all they gotta do to make the torture and the pain stop is say, okay, we made the whole thing up and yet not one of them did. See, only somebody who knew something was true, only something, somebody who had seen something with their own eyes and it had changed their life, they're the only one who says, you know what, come what may, I can't stop talking about what I've seen, what I saw with my own eyes. 
all of a sudden, these people who saw Jesus after the resurrection, their lives are transformed. They go on to live completely differently. They can't ever live the same way that they did before again. And they become witnesses. That's what Paul calls them here in Acts 13. Witnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection. They went around telling everybody at peril to their own lives this incredible thing that they had seen that changed everything. See, it was something for which they were willing to suffer and die if necessary. Why? Because it was so important. Because the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead, it changes everything. Now, maybe you would ask, okay, well, what does it change? Like, I still don't get it. Like, why is this such a big deal? Well, that leads us to our third thing that Paul shows us about the resurrection and why it matters. Third point, Jesus' resurrection matters. Why? Because it gives us hope. It gives us hope. Paul says this in verse uh, 32 and into verse 33. We bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers that he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So what Paul's saying is, it's through Jesus, because he was resurrected, that we can receive the promises of God. What are those promises? Well, he tells us in the following verses. In verse 33, he tells us that because of Jesus' resurrection, we can become children of God. We can become sons and daughters that God adopts us into his family and he calls you his child. He doesn't treat you like a stranger. He doesn't treat you like an acquaintance. He doesn't even treat you like a friend, although that would be good. No, he goes beyond that and he treats you as a child. He makes you an heir, right? An heir, that means that all of what belongs to God now belongs to you. All that is his is yours. And he will love you. He'll be faithful to you. And one day, he is going to bring you home. In verse 38, Paul tells us something else that Jesus' um, death and resurrection give to us. He says that we can be forgiven of our sins because Jesus rose from the dead. So whatever you've done in the past, whatever mistakes you've made, you can be forgiven. And if you're forgiven, that means you can let go of the guilt. You can let go of shame for, for past mistakes because Jesus paid the price for those sins. They were nailed with him to the cross. They were buried with him in the grave. And when he rose from the dead, they didn't come back with him. In verse 39, Paul tells us another thing, another promise of God that is ours because of Jesus' resurrection. He says in verse 39 that because Jesus died and rose again, we can be justified. Do you know what justified means? That's beyond just being forgiven. Being justified is a status, right? It means to have a good standing before God. Maybe let me kind of illustrate the difference between being forgiven and being justified so you can kind of wrap your head around it. Let's imagine I owe you $10 million, right? And I'm, that's like the amount of money that I would never be able to pay you back. Even if I worked my entire life, I'd never be able to pay back that debt. But let's say you, because you're kind and you're generous, you say, Nick, I am just going to forgive that debt. You owe me an incredible amount of money. I'm gonna forgive that debt. Okay, so what happens when you forgive that debt? My balance goes from being a negative balance to being zero. My balance is now zero. I have a fresh start and a clean slate. And that's good news. That's forgiveness. But justification is something more. Now imagine again, what if I have this great debt, right? And you not only forgive my debt, but you go one step further and you say, not only am I gonna bring you back to zero, but I'm gonna take $100 million and, and deposit it into your account. And what if you say, in fact, I'm gonna go even further than that. I'm gonna make you a co-signer on all my accounts. In other words, everything I have 
You have access to it. It's all yours. No longer do I have a negative balance like I did before because that's been forgiven, but you've gone even further and now I have a positive balance which is so much greater than the negative balance I started with in the first place. That's the difference between forgiveness and justification. Forgiveness is glorious in its own, but justification is something beyond compare. That's what it means to be justified. See, and that's what God has done for us in Jesus. He didn't just forgive our sins, but he justified us. He he did so much more. Guys, that's why Jesus' resurrection matters. But now I wanna kind of turn a corner a little bit and I wanna make this personal. I wanna talk to you about why you need a resurrection. See, on Easter, we're not just talking about the fact that Jesus rose. We're talking about the fact that through him, we can rise too, to new life. So let's talk about why you need a resurrection. And to do that, we're gonna go to one of my excuse me, favorite passages in the entire Bible, Ephesians chapter two. You can feel free to turn there. It might be up on the screen, but I'll walk you through it. Here in Ephesians chapter two, Paul gives us three reasons why you need a resurrection. The first reason why you need a resurrection is this. You need a resurrection to bring you from death to life. You need a resurrection to bring you from death to life. This section begins, Ephesians chapter two, starting verse one with these incredible words, these surprising words. He says this, but you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, maybe you're like me and you read that and you say, I was dead. Like when, when was I dead? That seems like something that I would remember, right? Like that would stick with me. It seems like kind of a big deal. Uh, and, and clearly what he's talking about here is not a physical death. What he's talking about is a spiritual death. He's saying you were dead spiritually. And then in the next two verses, in verse two and verse three, he goes on to describe what that spiritual deadness is like and tell us, and here's what he tells us. He tells us actually that all people in the world This is our default spiritual condition. See, because of the curse of sin and death, because of our rebellion against God, this is how uh, we come into the world. This is how we're born. We're born this way, dead spiritually. And what that means is that you can be alive physically and alive emotionally and mentally, and yet at the same time, there's a part of you that is dead, that part which God created to be eternal, that part which God created to connect with him, your spirit, is dead. See, that's what sets human beings apart from the animal world. The Bible tells us that out of all creation, human beings are unique because God created them uniquely in his image. In his own image, he created them. We bear the image of God. And part of what that means is that God has given us an eternal spirit. It's that part of us that connects with him and lives forever. And so just think about that. Think about this. What do animals care about? Right? What do animals live for uh, day to day? Well, animals care about eating. Uh, they care about having fun. They care about procreating, you might say. Right? Animals have thoughts and they have emotions, but there's something about us that is different than them. Like, for example, have you ever noticed that your dog never stops to pray before he eats, right? He just dives right in. Like he never stops and says, you know, I should really take a minute to reflect on where this came from and that there's a God out there who takes care of me. It never even crosses his mind. He never does it. He just dives right in and and eats, right? Or how about your cat? You're here at church right now. Where's your cat? 
Well, I'll tell you where, not at church, right? Like your cat is not at church, right? It didn't even cross your cat's mind that, hey, it's Easter Sunday and it might be a good idea to get together with some other cats in the neighborhood and give thanks to God, right? And, and, and do some worship. Animals have no concept of tomorrow. They have no concept of the future. They have no concept of hope or thinking about what happens after this life is over. And here's the thing I want you to see. If that part of you that is eternal, that spirit, that part of you that connects with God is dead, if, if you're spiritually dead, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but I want you to just follow me on this. If you're living on that level, aren't you living on the same level as an animal? Paul describes it. You're, you're only caring about the here and now. Paul describes it in verse two and three. He says this. He says, you're just following after the pattern of this world, right? Like just caring about the passions of your flesh and the desires of your body and mind. You're only thinking about what feels good now. There's no thought about God. There's no thought about what happens after this life is over. You're just thinking on the level of an animal. What can I do right now that feels good? And he's saying, that's actually how a lot of people live their lives. He said, that's actually the pattern of this world. That's what most people do. And he says, here's why. Because we're spiritually dead without any hope beyond this life. Even though, guys, it's like we're racing towards eternity like a runaway train with no brakes. It's coming and it's coming fast. And if we're not even thinking about it. And guys, here's the other thing about being dead. Like um, when you're dead, there's nothing you can do to like make yourself not be dead anymore, right? Like think about this. Uh, I don't wanna sound morbid, but there's a reason why like dead people aren't like a lot of fun to hang out with. There's a, you know, um, there's a reason and they're not good at doing stuff. That's why, right? Like um, if you throw them a Frisbee, it, it, they don't catch it, right? And they never throw it back. You have to walk over there and pick it up yourself. If you need help moving your couch, well, don't call a dead person because they're not gonna be able to help you. In fact, they're probably not even gonna pick up the phone. Right? And, and what's even worse, uh, a dead person is completely incapable of doing anything to help themselves or to fix what is wrong with them. If you yell at them and tell them to pull it together and come on, get up, do better, try harder, they're not going to be able to do anything to help themselves. Why? Because they're dead. Right? What you need, in other words, if we're spiritually dead, what we need is not just a boost. We don't need just a little bit of help from the man upstairs. You know what we need? You need a resurrection. If you're dead, you need a resurrection. Now check out what it says next, starting in verse four. He's, he's begun by telling us, you were dead, but he says in verse four, but God, right? Those two most beautiful words in the world, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. See guys, you need a but God moment in your life. You need not just a little bit of help from God. You need a resurrection. You need to be brought from death to life. And the message of the gospel, guys, the message of Easter is that just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, through him, God can do this resurrecting work in your life as well. You can go from being spiritually dead to becoming spiritually alive. And let me tell you this, you were not made to live on the level of an animal. You were made for so much more than that. You were made for heroic acts and beauty and adventure and joy, not to live like an animal. And that's why the resurrection is so important in your life. Your spirit comes alive. And guys, that's when you become fully human. 
That's when you become who you were created to be. But it's more than that, right? So why do you need a resurrection? Well, that's one reason. The second reason is this. You need a resurrection to save you from condemnation and give you eternal life. In verse three, after talking about what it means to be spiritually dead, Paul adds these words. He says, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, all of the mistakes that I've made, all the sins that you've committed, we're gonna have to answer to God for those things. And the problem is when we stand before God, we will have no excuse, right? We will have no excuse because we have done it. What are we gonna say? We have broken his commandments. We have fallen short of his standard. What we need, you know what we need? We need a resurrection. We need a new life. And here's why, think about this. You can't put a dead person on trial. Have you thought about that? Like let's imagine you know, somebody does something. Well, you could put them on trial unless they're dead then you can't put them on trial. You can't put a dead person on trial. And here's the good news of the gospel is that the old you, the rebel, the criminal, the guilty one was nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ and has died. And because of Jesus' resurrection, you can be born again to a new life. And with that new life comes a new identity and a new destiny. You're no longer a child of wrath. You become a child of God. And Paul tells us in verses six and seven, he says this, God then raises you up and seats you in the heavenly places with Christ so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness, or sorry, of his grace in kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. What's he talking about here? He's talking about eternal life. For the next 100,000 million years, you're gonna experience the riches of his grace rather than the wrath of his judgment because of Jesus. That's the gospel, that's the good news. You need a resurrection to save you from condemnation and give you eternal life. And the last reason why you need a resurrection that I wanna show you this morning is this. You need a resurrection to give you mission and a purpose in this life. You need a resurrection to give you a mission and a purpose in this life. I love how Paul concludes this section. It starts in verse eight. He says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith and it is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of works that no one can boast. And then he says this in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice what Paul's saying. He's saying this, we're not saved by our good works. How could we? We're dead, right? We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that you can go and live them out, so you can go ahead and walk in them. You know what that means? It means that God has a mission for your life. God has a purpose. God has a calling for your life, something for you to do in this world. In other words, God doesn't just save you from something. He saves you for something. He wants to give you a new life. He wants to give you a new purpose, a new mission. Whereas before, you're just living on the level of an animal, thinking about yourself. Now you're living for a whole new purpose, a whole new mission to do his will. And here's the thing. When you have the hope of eternal life, it changes the way you live here and now. Did you know that? When you have the hope of eternal life, it changes the way you live here and now. Because think about it. If this life is all you've got, then you better spend every dollar you have on making it as good as you possibly can because this is all you've got. If this life is all you've got, then you 
why sacrifice for anybody? You need to worry about yourself. You need to worry about making sure this life is good for you because this is as good as it's ever gonna get. So don't blow it. But if on the other hand, you have the hope of eternal life, then this life isn't as good as it's gonna get. In fact, this life is actually as bad as it will ever get. It's only gonna get better. And for a thousand, million, billion years to come, you have unspeakable joy and adventure and love to look forward to, perfect security. And that means that you've got this little window of time right now here on this earth while you've got breath in your lungs to use your life in the service of something that really matters something that's truly important, something that's bigger than just you. See, what will that be? That's the question for you to answer before God. What will that be that you will spend your life on, that you will invest your time in? You see, if you know that you're gonna be taken care of for the rest of eternity, you know what that does? It sets you free. It sets you free to give your life. In fact, you can give away everything you are and everything you have in the service of something that really matters because you're free. You're free to make sacrifices. You're free to give it all away even. Why? Because you know that that which really matters is already in the bank. It's yours and you're gonna experience it forever. See, when you have the hope of eternal life, then you're truly free to live this life with courage and bravery and to fulfill God's mission and calling for your life, even to make sacrifices. Guys, let me just finish by saying this. Jesus died and rose again so that you can have life, a full life here and now, and eternal life in the ages to come. How do you take hold of all these wonderful blessings? The Bible says you do it by believing. You know what that means to believe? It doesn't just mean that you believe that all these stories in the Bible are true. No, it's something beyond that, right? To believe in this sense is much more personal. It means to trust in those things, to rely on it, to cling to it as your hope. See, you need a resurrection. And the good news of Easter is that because Jesus was resurrected, you can be too. And as you look to Jesus today, this Easter Sunday, may you trust in him. May you cling to him. May you rely on him. May you hope in him so that by believing in him, you might take hold of the life that is truly life. Amen? Lord, we thank you that in you is life. Uh, life, a full life here and now. Lord, you give us a purpose and a mission. You make us fully human. Lord, thank you also for the life that is to come. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for our sins so that we could be forgiven, but not only forgiven, so that we could be justified before you. Lord, so that we could have uh, the promise of eternal life because you've made us your kids and you've, you've adopted us into your family. Lord, I pray for every one of us here today that these wouldn't just be things that we nod our head at, but that truly, even right now, we would put our hope in these things. We would trust in them. We'd cling to them. We'd rely on them. Lord, may we believe so that by doing it, we might experience uh, true life. We know that no celebration of Easter is complete without us taking that step and putting our trust and hope and reliance in you. So may we do that today in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.